0: amazing for her. And he's going to use her in very significant ways in her future. Father, we just release her, Lord, into everything that you've called for her. God, we just put your grace upon her with the move and this transition that she's going to go through. And Father, we just thank you that you call her into this new world. And I thank you, Father, that there's going to be promotion, that there's going to be increase. God, that she's going to be significant and that she's going to be influential in that world. And Lord, that she's going to take you with her as she goes. And God, as she rises in this field and becomes into these more uh, promoted and increased positions, that they're just, she's able to bring your love, your grace, your word, your voice to that world, Lord. And so we just release her. And God, we just declare her destiny. We just thank you so much for our time with her. We love her. We wrap our grace around her and your grace around her. And we just thank you for it, Lord. And we just thank you for it. And I just see really good things in your future, which I won't even say right now. But anyway, I'll bless you. <laughs> All right. We love you. So, all right. So, all right. So, we're going to do, we're doing a power of the resurrection. And we've been talking the last few weeks about what the resurrection does for us. And so, this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about how the resurrection opens our eyes. Okay? So, I'm going to read this for you. And really, what this, where this is coming from is it's Luke. I believe, uh, I can't, I'm blanking out on the chapter, but it's the end of Luke. And so what, what I'm going to read for you, is this is what's called the story of the Emmaus, I think it's Luke 24, Luke, the Emmaus Road, all right? And so what's going on here is you're seeing Jesus is going to encounter a couple of people as they're walking on a road going home. And then I'm going to build it out for you a little bit. It says, now behold, two of them, two of who? Two disciples were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. What same day? It was the day that Jesus rose. So you have two disciples heading on a road, going home, leaving Jerusalem, going back on the same day that Jesus was risen. So that's what the Bible is talking about there. And they're heading back towards a place called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked together, all these things which had happened, as they talked, they talked about everything that they had just experienced. Jesus was crucified. It was literally the center point of the entire festival of Passover. Pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all over the world had come and God had called them all there to to Passover because he knew one day the Son of God, the Messiah, was going to be crucified, and he wanted this known. And so these people are walking on a road going home and they think Jesus is dead. They don't, they are like, man, they're just completely bummed out. And they're talking about they're just kind of mulling over everything that had just happened. And it says, so it wild while they were conversing and they were reasoning. So it, it's basically a husband and a wife. The one guy's going to, his name is Cleopas. And I'll tell you a little bit about him in a minute. And essentially what most believe is it's a husband and a wife. And I'll tell you why about that in a minute. So it's basically husband and a wife walking together on a road, going back home. And they're, at, they're just talking about everything that went on. Can you believe what happened? I don't understand. Do you, do you, do you see what's going on? And they're reasoning among themselves. And it says their eyes were restrained. Well, why were their eyes were restrained? Because Jesus drew near, and all of a sudden they're walking, and all of a sudden here's a third dude walking, there's some other dude walking with you, and they didn't even recognize who he was. It says their eyes were, were restrained so that they did not know him. And he, Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? That's essentially what he says. He just walks right up and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? If you don't think Jesus is extroverted, you don't know him. He walks right up while the husband and wife are talking, and he's like, hey, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? Yeah, what's going on? So he starts talking to them. <laughs> What kind of conversation is this that you're having? Why are you walking this way? And why are you so sad? Ask yourself that. Just say, why am I so sad? Yeah, you know, Jesus wants to know why you're sad. And half the times you don't even know why you're sad. So if you don't know why you're sad, how is he going to help you if you don't even know what your sadness is from? And it says, then one of those who was walking, his name was Cleopas. And Cleopas says, dude, have you been living under a rock? Are you like the only one in this entire region that has no idea what went on? And Jesus was actually like, no, but I've been in a cave for a few days. I've been under a rock, but I have, I have been in a cave for a few days. Thank you very much, back there in the corner. Yes. Ah. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on? And he said to them, what things? And they said, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. He was mighty indeed in the word of God and the power of God before him and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers delivered him, condemned him, and killed him, and crucified him. Don't you understand? Where were you? And we were hoping. Everybody says they were hoping. They were hoping hoping that he was the one. And decides besides all this, this is the third day since this has happened, and they can't find his body. Yes, certain women of our company arrived at the tomb, and they astonished us when they did not find his body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels and the angels told her that he was told us that he was alive and certain of those who were with with us were sent to the tomb and they found it just as the woman said but his body was gone so in other words they're confused they don't know what happened and Jesus said oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe ah what a statement in all that the prophets have spoken just say this i will not be foolish i will not be, will not be slow of heart to believe all the things that the Word of God has said. Ought not Christ have suffered these things to enter into his glory? They did not understand that everything Jesus did was in line with the text and the scripture. Everything was according to script. And so he began to reason with them. He takes them all the way back to Moses and the prophets, and he expounds to them the scriptures. Now, you want to talk about a Bible study? Jesus walked down a road giving you a Bible study. That must have been amazing, right? I don't, you know. And let me tell you what Moses said about him, and let me tell you what Isaiah said about him, and let me tell you what Jeremiah said about him. And he's just going on and on and on and on, defining to them, and it says, concerning himself, and it says, the disciples' eyes opened. They, they were like, whoa, they got a revelation. They got an insight into something that they hadn't seen before. And it says, they drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated to them, that he would have gone further. In other words, they're going into a village and Jesus is going to keep on going. But they invite him. Okay? Say this with me. Jesus Jesus. will keep on going going. unless unless I invite him. Do you understand that? He'll keep right on going unless you invite him. But they invited him. And what did he do? He went into the house with them. Jesus always goes where he's invited. If you invite him, he'll come. He'll come. Jesus will come into a situation whether he's recognized or not if he's invited. That's why when people call out to God, the Lord shows up, whether he's recognized in that situation or not. People that are in bad situations and bad circumstances, when they call upon the Lord, the, the Lord shows up. Even if he's not recognized, he'll still show up. And so they invited him into a situation, and Jesus came, even though he was not recognized. And it so said, they drew near the village and they said, Abide with us. For it is evening, and the day is far spent. And he went to stay with them. And it came to pass as they sat at the table and broke bread. He gave it to them that their eyes were opened. And they knew it was Jesus. And he vanished from their sight. Now, that's a supernatural miracle. That's called an encounter, right? Where did he go? We don't tell us. But he left. Jesus couldn't do anything he wanted to. He's like, boom, you got it now? Poof, he leaves. And, he, and their eyes were opened, and, scripture, and so they rose up that hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven who were gathered, saying, The Lord is truly risen. We have seen him. This isn't a myth. You know what the problem is? This is really interesting. So here you go, ladies. I'm going to give you something for the women here. The women in that culture were not believed. They were not allowed to testify. They were not allowed to bear witness to truth. They were not allowed to do anything. And so you can understand that when the women came to the disciples and said, Jesus is risen and we've seen angels they would be like <laughs> you sure yeah right uh-huh right all right thank you very much Mary thanks for your time thank appreciate you sharing and so they would go even though they went to the tomb and they found the tomb empty no disciple had an encounter with Christ no male disciple it was the women so what is Jesus doing he by him doing that he validates the testimony of the woman he takes the lowly and exalts them. He takes the outcast and brings them in. The woman was on the outcast outside. They couldn't come in. Jesus said, well, you know what? I'm not going to appear to Peter, but I am going to appear to Mary. I'm going to appear to the women, and I'm going to give them the testimony. Go and tell my disciples. And she would go and tell them. And so even here, they're a little confused. And now they're both going back to tell the disciples, everything these women have said is true. We have seen the Lord. Next slide. This is where I wanted to go real quick. You have two disciples that are leaving. One guy's name's Cleopas. Who's this guy, Cleopas? Well, we don't know. We know that Cleopas is in the scripture. The Bible tells us his name. It tells us in John, uh, when Jesus is on the cross, it tells us that J- John was at the cross, Mary, Mary Magdala, and Mary, the, ma- the wife of Cleopas. So Cleopas and his wife were close to Jesus. They weren't part of the inner circle. And it appears that Cleopas' wife was very close to Mary. And so we know that these people occur in in other stories within the scripture. They're traveling on the third day after the Passover. What is unusual about this? What's unusual about this is if you went all the way to Jerusalem, typically they stayed for the week. Because here's how the Jewish feast works. The the spring feasts work like this. Passover began the feast. On the same day as Passover, a seven-day feast occurred. So it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover start on the same day. Three days later is the Feast of Firstfruits. So literally, pilgrims would stay for the whole week, and they would celebrate all three feasts. They, they would go for Passover, woo, they'd stay for Unleavened Bread, woo, and then they'd stay all the way through the week until the Feast of Unleavened Bread was fulfilled. It's unusual for people to be leaving on the third day. Well, why was it the third day? Because the, Sabbath, the time of the Sabbath was over. They were allowed to travel if they wanted to, but ordinarily they didn't travel. And so why are they leaving? They're leaving because they're disappointed. They're leaving because they're in despair. They don't want to stay and party anymore. You know what I'm saying? For them, Jesus is dead. The party's over. I can't stay here anymore. Let's go home. And so they're picking up all of their belongings, he and his wife, and they're going back down the road of Emmaus. And what causes us to not recognize God? And there's lessons in here. There's lessons in here for us that we need to recognize about ourselves and then there's rec- lessons in here that God is, tr- is going to teach us that we need to recognize him from the spiritual perspective as well. They couldn't see Jesus because they were in despair. And how many people know is you can't really see what the Lord is doing if you're in despair? Oh, we, we, Why? What? How? They had lost a friend. They had, in, in, in the losing of Christ, they lost their sense of purpose. They were feeling empty. This word despair means without inspiration without inspiration. They had, they had just basically, what are we going to do when we get home? I don't know. I don't know. Figure something out. It's kind of like that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever lose your inspiration? No? Not, not yet anyway? Life will teach you. You'll lose your inspiration because that's what life does. Life shows up and causes these things to happen. So they were in despair. They had no inspiration. It also means without breath. They couldn't breathe. They were just like without breath. Have you ever lost someone or something and you just feel like you can't breathe? Wasn't there a pop song out there? No air, no air, I think. I don't know. That's what I'm hearing. No air, whatever. I can't sing, so I'm not on American Idol. I can carry tunes in a bucket. That's about it. The second reason they couldn't see Jesus was because they were disappointed. What does disappointment mean? It means they had appointed him to do something, and he had not done it. They had appointed him to be someone, and he had not gone according to their plans. Disappointed. Jesus never appointed himself in the line of their expectations. What they missed, what they had failed to understand, their perception had now defined their reality. The way they saw it became what was real to them. What they they failed to understand was that the Bible, the Old Testament, clearly spoke of two lanes of Jesus. There's two rivers. So if you understand the Old Testament and if you don't, I'm going to give you the picture and why these people were so confused. They spoke of a suffering servant a servant that would come in the form and the likeness of man, one like unto Moses, who would be humbled, who would die, who would be crushed, who would be beaten, who would again rise again. All that was in the Old Testament. And then it spoke of another Messiah who was a conquering king, who rode a white horse, who trampled the nations under his feet, whose robe was dipped in blood, and who comes through the valley of Shiloh, saying, where have you been, Lord? He said, I've been walking through the valley crushing my enemies. That's the one they wanted. And so they politicized him. That's Jesus' second coming. His second coming is when he will crush his enemies. His second coming is when he will make all things new and and completely purge his threshing floor. That's what John said. The Messiah comes, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor. He will divide the wheat from the chaff. He will take the wheat into the barn, and he's going to burn the chaff with fire. That was the message John was proclaiming. So you can see the whole culture had politicized Jesus into this king this the coming conquering king and they had completely they 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 diminished the fact that he was coming as a suffering servant first because that doesn't make us feel good who's your messiah oh our messiah is going to be crushed and died our messiah is going to die our messiah is going to die on a cross our messiah is going to be delivered by and destroyed by gentiles well that doesn't make you sound real good right that doesn't really give you a warm fuzzy feeling but it does sound real warm and fuzzy he's coming on a white horse he's going to destroy everything he's going to wipe it out he's going to exalt his people That's how it's going to go They missed the fact that he's first going to come lowly riding on a donkey. So he's going to come lowly riding on a donkey before he comes on the white horse. They missed that. And so they were confused and there was a lot of despair and they had appointed him to do certain things. That's why John Thomas doubted. Thomas doubted because Jesus didn't do it the way Thomas wanted him to do it. Thomas had no doubt. Thomas was not really the doubter we make him out to be. If you read the Gospels, it says when they were going to go to Jerusalem, Thomas is like, let us go with him that we may die with him. That doesn't sound too much like doubt right there, does it? They're like, man, Jesus, it's on. He's going to throw it down. Let's go. Let's die with him so that we can reign with him. Thomas's ideal. And then Jesus dies on a cross, humiliated, suffering, beaten, dies as a victor in the position of a victim, lays his life down. That wasn't Thomas's ideal so he's just like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Because Thomas had so locked his mind into it only going one way that it couldn't go any other way. Anybody know what I'm talking about? God calls you to something. We add little things to it. We lock things into one, one understanding that if it goes any other way, we freak out and we just throw up our hands in despair or disappointment and go, well, God can't possibly be in this. He's in it. It's just not according to your per- perception. This is one of the reasons why the mind of Christ is so important. Human perception does not equate with heaven's reality. The way we see things does not always mean the way that heaven is going to translate them. I mean, we do it even in our modern day. If you're familiar with church culture, you'd be probably familiar with the term rapture. We've got the rapture so politicized into it only being one way that if Jesus were to come the way the scripture says, we'd freak out and go, well, that's not in the Bible. Of course it's in the Bible. We've just created a framework that it can only happen the way that we've proclaimed it. That's the same problem that they had. The same problem. They had not understood the text for what the text said. They understood the text for what they wanted it to say. We do the same thing with the Lord. God calls us to something or he tells us something, and then it doesn't go the way that we wanted it to, and we get disappointed. It will go the way he's determined it. And guess what? The way that he's determined it is way better. Way better. See they were they said in verse 21 we were hoping he was the one. Perception is something that does not just because you perceive something, say it with me. Just do you guys understand what perception is? Perception means the way we see it. So just because I see it this way, say it with me, just because I see it this way does not mean it's truth. Just because you see it a certain way does not mean it's truth. The way you see it may be reality, but it is not the greater reality. You understand? The reality is this, and you may see it and go, well, this is reality. But truth is the greater reality. All things are possible to him that believe. It's the same idea. You're like looking at your reality and you're like, I'm broke. I don't have a pot to pee in. I'm I'm, I'm like, you know, this is just the reality. Truth says that God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Truth says your God is for you. Even when you're against yourself, what can separate me from the love of God? Truth says you are blessed in season and out of season. You will be made the head and not the tail. Which reality do you want to live in? So, what does it look like? It looks like lining up our perception with truth. And when you line up your perception with what is true, reality changes. You hear me teach it all the time. This is how the kingdom works. We press into truth until truth becomes the reality. Truth will never become the reality until you begin to push into it, it will never become the reality. What does the Bible say? I don't feel saved. I don't look saved. I just don't like it. Just doesn't feel. The Truth is, truth is you're not only saved. Let's get truth in perspective here when it comes to that. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Exactly. What does that mean? It means I am seated where he sits. My power, my authority, my identity, my purpose, everything about me comes from where he is. So I need to learn how to get that into this. That's what it looks like. We press towards truth until truth becomes the reality. What some would call a breakthrough, breaking through. What happens? We've pursued truth. Now truth has what? Broken through. We think that we're breaking through to that world. That we're not breaking through that world. We're getting that world to break into ours. That's how it works. We're looking the wrong way. No, come on. Thank you very much. Nah, we're trying to press in and go, oh, I just got to get close to God. I just need a breakthrough. No, you're trying to get that world, trying to get that truth to break into your reality. That's what it looks like. It's the greater reality. Christian's hope, say it with me. My hope is never lost. Never. It's only deferred. The Christian's hope is never lost. It's only deferred. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's the call of the believer. But joy comes in the morning. What is he saying? He never say hope that is lost depresses you. We do not have lost hope, Christian, ever, at any time, ever. Your hope is only deferred. It's only set off. You know what deferred means? Okay, like you guys ever watch football? Some of my football fans in here, you're going to get it. It's like, you know, I defer to the second half. In other words, I I have the ball, but I've deferred. I'm going to get the ball in the second half. It's going to come. It's just coming at a different time. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but joy will come. Joy will come. Your hope is never lost as as a Christian. Unto Jesus Christ our hope. Some of you need to write that into, into your Bible, put it on your mirror, whatever. Jesus is always your hope. Always. No one is dead so long as the hand of God is stretched out in your direction. And I got news, his hand is always stretched out. Always. He does not withdraw his hand. His hand is stretched out question is, will you take it? Hope is never lost. It is only deferred. Next slide, please. It says, then two of the disciples reported to John concerning him. So here's a guy who had the wrong perception of Jesus. John the Baptist. He's in prison. He's in prison. John's perception, Jesus is going to bring fire. He's burning it. Brood of vipers, who told you to flee the coming wrath? That's how John talked, walked around. What time is it? What time is it? You know what I mean? It's, it's fire time. It's judgment time. You know, you brood of vipers, you bunch of Pharisees, you better get it right. You better get it right. The axe is laid at the foot of the tree, and he will hew the tree down that does, not cut fruit, that does not produce fruit. He will burn it in the fire. This is how John's talking. And so all of a sudden, Jesus is doing something that isn't exactly the way John had proclaimed him to be. And so John's confused, and John's in jail, going, wait a minute. This isn't how I thought it was going to work out. I didn't see this one coming. And it says, he says to Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? In other words, John was saying, Jesus, you are supposed to be doing these things according to the scripture. You're not. That's what John was saying in a nice way. And Jesus answers him. And he says, oh, John wants to know if I'm doing it according to the scripture. Go tell John what you see. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is saying to John, I'm doing everything exactly according to the scripture, but it's not in the context or the perception that you understand it to be. I'm doing something far greater than you could possibly imagine. To John, it looked like what Jesus was doing was weak. Grace looks weak. To the religious, grace looks weak. But to the kingdom, grace is the most powerful thing in the entire world. There's transformation in grace. But to the religious person, grace looks weak. Not to say that John was religious, but it says, go and tell John what you've seen. The dead are raised, the gospel has a... and blessed is the one who's not offended. What happens when God does not do it the way that we want him to do it? If he has told you he's going to do something, he will do it. He will. He will. You partner with what he's doing, and you just let him... you do what he's telling you to do in relationship to what he said, but you let him do it the way that he's going to do it. Let him do it the way he wants. Don't you know? We we get, one of the big things is getting out of the way. We got two issues here. We got to either partner with him. Sometimes we need a partner. We need to step in. Other times we need to get out of the way and let him do it. You see, Sarah and, and Sarah. She, you know, God said Abraham's going to have a son. What didn't look like it was going to happen. So Sarah said, "I need to help out here." Here's the maid. Abraham, would you like to sleep with the maid? It's interesting. He didn't say no, huh? Ooh, uh, mm. sure. <laughs> uh, if, as long, as long as you're all right with it, of course, Sarah. I mean, I, mean I, I wouldn't do anything that you're okay with, you know. Anyway, so Sarah stepped in and tried to help him out. But God had told her that this was going to happen. But it wasn't happening. And so she was like, well, I guess Jesus needs some help here, so let me help him out. And so that, and it didn't work out very well. <laughs> and so he says, go and bless this he's not offended. What happens when it doesn't work out the way we want is we get offended. What does offense mean? Offense means to push away. If you can understand offense and understand the way the Bible speaks and understand even our own language, you can understand what's happening. And so God didn't do it the way that John wanted. And so what happens when it doesn't go the way we want, what do we do? We push away. Oh, this gospel doesn't work. Oh, Jesus isn't real. Oh, I don't want to give. I gave for, I always remember the story. I gave for two weeks. I, Pastor, I tied for two weeks, and I didn't get anything back. I'm like, what? Are you serious? What do you think? It's like, it's like a bell? Ding, 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 ding. Where's my room service? I always tell him, tithe for a full year, and then come back and tell me that, because you won't be able to. Give the full tithe for 12 months, and then you come back and tell me that nothing happened. Then we've got an issue. But he, it, you won't be able to, because he will come through. But, you know, that's the thing. We get offended when it doesn't go the way that we want. In our Burger King world, I want it now, and I want it my way, and God doesn't give it to us now, and he doesn't give it to us my way. We get offended, and we push away. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not pushing away because they don't like what I'm doing. Why are we blessed if we don't push away? Because what he's actually doing is greater than what you are imagining. John was thinking that he's going to torch the whole nation. Jesus wasn't going to torch the whole nation. He was going to save the world. John's perception of what God was doing was so finite. He had no idea what Jesus was actually doing. And he says, blessed if you're not offended, even if you don't understand what it is I'm doing, don't push away from me. That's what he told them. God has something greater planned for you. And your circumstances, this is good news. Let's say it together. My circumstances are not the final word. Aren't you glad? That's gospel. Your situation and your circumstances are not the final word. God is the final word. He says victory, not defeat. He says above only not beneath that's what he said well my circumstances say defeat well that's not what your bible says and that's not what your god says and you say but i feel like a dummy i feel like a fool if i sit there and confess god is greater he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world i feel like a dummy of course you do of course you do let's just keep straight you're gonna feel stupid you're gonna feel like a fool but the foolish things of god confound the wisdom of the world that's the whole point. You say, I feel foolish. He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. God's called me to be the head, not the tail. Dude, you're living, you you don't look like the head to me. You don't look like you can lead a dog across the street. I mean, what's going on? Well, (laughs) you know, the reality, the reality is not the truth. And sometimes it's necessary to begin to believe and to speak the truth before it happens. This is who your father is. And if who your father is, we're called to be like him. Do you know God calls what is not as though it was? He calls what is not as if it already was. That's who he is. So what should we do? We should call what is not as though it already was. He calls you. I tell Christians this all the time. He calls you who and what you are long before you get there. More than a conqueror. Huh? Anybody want to testify of their conquest this week? But we're more than a conqueror. Yeah, you guys, <laughs> Mickey's like, I came back from a mission trip, so I got a few tes- I got a few things I want to share. But, you know, but the point is, is that he calls us what we are before we get there. Sons and daughters, heirs of an eternal kingdom. You are divine royalty. There will come a day when the nations will present themselves before the Father. They will, they will present themselves before the Father, and the sons and daughters will be the ones inhabiting his court. You will stand in the courts of a king one day. Do you know that? Do you know that? You say, I come from the gutter. I don't care where you come from. This is who you are. You're divine royalty. So we should be loyal and loving and passionate about the one who makes us royal. We should, who does that for you? Has anybody ever told, given, given you royalty? Your Heavenly Father's given it to you. You didn't even ask for it. He calls you what you are long before you get there. So we get all kind of weird. Well, that just doesn't make logical sense to me. You know, Kevin, we're saying things into the air. Is that what we're doing? We're just kind of speaking things, confessing things. Yes, we are. We're confessing these things. Guess what? Ezekiel, you know what he said? Prophesy upon the wind. That's what he told Ezekiel. The valley of the dry bones. Can these bones live? I don't know, Lord. You know. And what did the Lord say? Speak to the wind. Speak to the air. He didn't say speak to the bones. He said, Prophesy upon the wind. Talk to the atmosphere. Talk to the air. That's what he said. Good enough for Ezekiel should be good, should be good enough for you. Right? Good enough for the Son of God should be good enough for us, all in all and all. So, all through the Bible. What shall we say to these things? Things talk to you, talk back. <laughs> talk back. Just lost my job. Praise God. I got a better opportunity around the corner. Talk back. Say what God says. Disappointments cause us to miss divine appointments. They were disappointed and they were about to miss the divine appointment. They were about to miss the most incredible encounter they had ever experienced up until this point. Next slide, please. They couldn't see him. What causes blindness? Well, we know for physical things, things that happen to us that make us blind are oftentimes where we need corrective surgery. Uh, cataracts are caused by dead skin cells that don't flake off your eye. They form into a lens over your eye. What does that mean? There's some things in your life that, you won't, that you're supposed to let go of, but you just can't let go of it. And you just pull that in, and you pull in a few more things, and you pull in a few more things, and you got all these things that you can't let go of, and now there's a lens over your spiritual eyes and you can't see anything. You can't see why you married the person you married. You can't see why you made the choices you made. You can't see why you did the things that you, you can't see why, because there's some things that you need to let go of, and you just haven't let go of them. And you keep pulling them in. Now you've got a lens over your eyes. You need corrective surgery. Glaucoma comes from excessive pressure behind the eye. Constant excessive pressure, if we do not check it, it causes us to not be able to see. What do we do with the pressure? We enter into his world. We cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. Every single thing in your life has an answer in the scripture. Every one of them. Put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I'm under a lot of pressure. I'm really weighed down. Put on the garment of praise. I don't feel like praising. Again, he doesn't ask you. That's the amazing thing to me. That's one thing God taught me through the word. I'm not asking, Kevin. I'm not asking. I'm not asking if you feel like praising me. This is the big one. I'm not here. <laughs> Lord, I don't feel like doing that. And I remember the Lord saying to me, "I'm not asking you if you feel like doing it." That was mind blowing to me. I was like, "I'm telling you to do it. I didn't ask you if you felt like it. In fact, I'm not really interested in your feelings on the matter at all. What I'm interested in is you doing what I told you to do. It's called obedience. And what we fail to understand in our in our westernized American culture is that obedience is when we don't want to." That's what obedience is. I don't feel like serving. I don't feel like giving. I don't feel like helping this person. I don't feel like doing that. I don't feel like saying I'm sorry. I don't feel like it. He didn't ask you if you didn't, if you felt like it. I learned that lesson in my marriage. I'd go to the Lord. I'm like, I'm not saying I'm sorry. I, just, I don't feel like I'm saying I'm sorry. I'm not saying it. You know, was like, well, lay your life down, Kevin. Is that what you're saying? You know, and I had this whole revelation on what it means to lay my life down and dying and all this other stuff. And I had to learn to say the things that I needed to say, whether I felt that I was right or whether I felt that I was wrong. Even if I didn't feel like I was right or wrong, I still had to do what was right before him. That's our problem. We don't feel like it's right to us. So we self justify our decisions because that just doesn't seem right to me. Well, it's not an issue of whether it's right to you. It's an issue of is it right before God? Righteousness comes from heaven. He determines what is right. You understand? And so we operate in righteousness by doing the things that He says is right. That's the idea of righteousness. You're not in the equation. This, again, is revelation to a generation. Our lives are not our own. We are bought with a price. We align with His purposes. We align with His kingdom. We align with everything that He is. All that we are for all that He is. Your gifts, your talents, your abilities, all that you are is for His glory. In all of His glory is for the empowerment of His kingdom through your life. It's incredible dynamic. It's incredible dynamic, but it's true. He gives them a lesson in faith and power. So Jesus says, "Foolish ones and slow of heart." Where they problem? What's the problem here? They didn't believe the word of God. Had they believed the word of God, they wouldn't have been in this position, to where they couldn't see. Jesus corrects them with the word. The word of God is our lens corrector in a generation that I think, I feel, I want, well, I believe God's like this, and I believe God's like this, and I believe a loving God would never do this, and I believe a loving God would never say that. It, again, it doesn't matter what you believe. God is not relative. It's not God as we understand him to be, it's God as he declares himself to be. That's the issue. The corrective lens of our life is the word of God. It's not what we think or feel. Nobody has the right to, to none of, no human has been given to right to say what's holy. You don't have that right. You don't have the right, no human being, no government, no agency has the right to say to anyone else what is holy and what is not. That is the Lord's alone. He alone is holy. No government, no society, no institution has the right to say to anyone else what is right and what is wrong, unless it lines up with the one who declares what is right and what is wrong. This is, we've been taught relativism. The kingdom doesn't operate off of relativism. It's not what you think, what you feel, what you want. Well, that's your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. It's true. Well, you believe Jesus is the Savior. Well, the only reason I believe it is because it's true. You know, Jesus is the Savior. There is salvation in no other. Sorry. Well, I don't believe that. Well, you're in for a really, if you don't, you know, you're in for a really interesting reality if you don't kind of shift your perspective on that. So he corrects them with the word of God. He corrects them. He corrects their vision with the word. And it says, as they drew near to the village, so they come into the village and Jesus comes before them and he brings them into a place of remembrance. He breaks bread and gives them wine. Sound familiar? Bread and wine, it's a common thing with Jesus, body, blood. And all of a sudden when they when they took the bread and the wine together, their eyes were open and Jesus vanished. Well, what's he doing now? He's teaching them now not to, uh, to he's teaching them that we are correction to understand the things that blind us to understand where our correction comes from, which is the word of God. And then he teaches them something that is far deeper and far more profound. He teaches them to live by the presence. He wants them to learn to recognize the presence. They did not recognize him when they were with him, even though they were sensing his presence. They go on to say, did not our hearts burn in us? When he was talking, were we not on fire? Were we not alive when he was speaking? Jesus, Peter turned to Jesus and he said, "Are you going to leave too?" He said, "Where are we going? You have the words of eternal life." He says, "I don't know. I don't know half the stuff you're saying, Jesus. But one thing I know: when you speak, I come alive. That's what I know. When I'm with you, I feel alive. That's enough for me." They were invited. They, Jesus takes them into a little small group. See, what's what happens in small groups? I'm going to plug our small groups. If you don't know where our small groups are, we have a Sign up over there. If you're not a part of a small group, you should. Because from the small group comes greater understanding. From the small group comes greater intimacy. Jesus goes into the house, breaks bread, and has a small group with them. And they're opened up to an even greater understanding of who God is and the relationship that he has for us. Next slide, please. They said to one another, did not our hearts burn in us while we talked upon the road and we opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. So they have an encounter what is an encounter? An encounter is an experience that you have with God that profoundly shifts you. That, that's, the church needs encounter. We need information. We need, you know, text. We need truth. We need principles. We need platforms for all those things. But we need encounter because truth only becomes real through encounter. They had heard that Jesus was alive and was, was risen, but now they encountered him, and now no one could tell him differently. You were going to argue with Cleopas and say Jesus wasn't risen. Why? Because he had encountered the Lord. He had experienced him. The key to encounter was intimacy. They drew near. The key to encounter was welcoming. You want an encounter with God? Draw near. Welcome him. Lord, come in. Do what you want to do. Do what you need to do. And they had a desire for more. They invited him to come into their house. So if we want greater things and we want these encounters, we have to hunger for them. There's a proverb that says, a man's hunger is what drives him the directions you go in are related to the hunger that you have. That's what will drive you. And one of our hungers and one of our driving points spiritually has to be for more of him. The key to power is learning to discern the presence. Learning to discern the presence. What Jesus was teaching them is, I was walking with you. You were sensing my presence, but you weren't acknowledging it. I was walking with you. You You were sensing something, but you were too dull to understand that I was there. Grace is always in the room. The presence is always in the room. Always. He is with you always, even to the end of the earth. So you're in a situation, and it's like, Lord, where's your grace in this matter? Where's your presence? I know you're here somewhere. I know you're wanting to do something here somewhere. There's, there's, the presence is in the room. And what the, the key is, from a ministry standpoint, it's learning to recognize the presence and then discern the heart of what God wants to do. That's what it looks like. So you discern the presence. Right. And then you discern what the heart. I'll tell you a story. We were at this conference and an uh, elderly lady was sitting in front of me. And, um, you know, I could just felt like, you know, just like perceived this glow around her. I was like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's great. And so I leave. And, you know, when I come back and we're getting ready to leave, she's still sitting in the front row and I go to get my stuff. And I walked up to her because I could I could again, I could sense again, I could sense the presence of God directing towards her. And so I said, hey, can I share with you something? Can I share with you a word? And I just kind of stepped into it. And I started telling her what I saw. And it turned into this whole word. Well, for the next three days, um, Betty, I love you, Betty, if you're listening. So she's like, where did you get me? But anyway, uh, Betty's calling me over. She's introducing me to all these people. She's saying, she comes up to me the next day. She's like, I was up till 1.30 in the morning remembering what you told me, remembering that word. So I go, hey, Betty, can I give you a word? She's like, yeah. She's like, give me my phone. And she starts recording it on her phone. And I just was sharing with her the heart of God and what God had for her and how the Lord saw her. And I was telling her, your time isn't over. God has something for you. He's calling you from where you were into these things. It was just this whole word that I was giving her. And I gave it to her. And so the idea, what was the, the idea? I discerned the presence of what God wanted to do. I stepped into it and began to relate to her the heart of God. Well, What's the heart of God? It's always love. It's always grace. It's always restoration. It's always forgiveness. It's always next level. You're in some lane if you understand that. And so I just started stepping into it and started telling her these things. And I asked her a bunch of stuff, and she was like, Oh my gosh, you have no idea. Later in the conference, Sherry was like, You were like the roaming prophet. Well, I was there, you know, and there's some things, and it was going on. It was a great conference. It was a great experience. But, you know, for me, I, I'm not, there's certain places I'm not at. I feel like, okay, uh, you know, been there done that anytime you've been there done that then you better go to the next level so i'm thinking been there done that so what's next level for me all right i'm gonna start ministering to people that's what i did and so i'm traveling around the conference didn't happen a lot it happened about four or five times but when it did happen another guy comes up to me just starts talking to me and uh, i'm just listening to his story i'm talking to him he works with another a friend of ours church down the street or uh, on on the other side of town here and um, he's telling me his whole story and i just began to give him this word and he like totally begins to freak out you know I told him, I said, "Listen, I see you speaking in North Miami." And I said, "You're speaking to all these, these, these athletes, these student athletes." because the guy was a former MNFL player and, and just a whole story of things that he laid down his contract, and then he did all these different things. And I told him, I said, "Man, what you have done are huge keys to your, for, to your future. The hardest thing to get Christians to do is to sacrifice. Can't go anywhere until you learn the principle of sacrifice." And he, he laid down his contract to go and work with this church in the middle of the inner city here in Miami. So he, he laid it down, you know? He said, I had a $185,000 rookie contract. And he said, I, I turned it down. He said, I, I just felt like the Lord was telling me what is a profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul. You know, he wasn't making millions, but that's, that's, a, you know, that's still a, a significant amount of money. And then the second thing he did when he came to my friend's church is he said, I grew up and my father was a bishop and all these other things. He said, there was nothing you could tell me about church that I didn't already know. And he said, so I went into this church and he said, I was talking to the Lord and the Lord said, shut up and submit to your leaders. And he said, so I began to shut up, and he said, for the last two years, I began to submit to my leaders. And I told him, I said, do you understand the importance of what you've done? Those are the two most important steps to the destiny of God in the future, in the life of the Christian. One is sacrifice. To get the people to understand that they have to sacrifice, that they have to live sacrificially, and to learn to understand what that means, that's huge. And then the second one is to get them to understand the power of submission through obedience. And here, here, this guy's doing it. And as soon as I told him that, the whole whole word that I had for him opened up. And I kept seeing this arc. And I said, I feel like God's going to accelerate you and he's going to arc your life upward. I said, I feel like you're going to begin to speak to student athletes. I said, in particular, North Miami. And I started talking to him about this region and all the things that God was going to do there. The guy starts freaking out. He goes, do you know, he said, last week, my father is friends with a coach in North Miami. And he said, and, and he said, his friend, the coach, asked my father if I would come and speak to the football team. He said, do you have any idea what you just said to me? I said, no, I don't. And I told him, I said, I see you working in the network of all of these teams. North Miami is an incredibly crime-ridden area. It's the most, I don't know if you watch the news. I was just saying that. All the, somebody, the drive-by shootings, a lot of gang violence, Miami Gardens, that whole area is just crime-ridden. And I said, I feel like God is calling you, and he's targeting you into there to begin to speak to these students. And, and he just tells me this whole story. And I said, and I feel like God's going to give you a side relationship with the coaches. Right? That's all I said to him. I just started giving him the word of God. You know, and he's freaking out. He's, sure, he's like, I don't know what you said to that guy, but he, he's like your new best friend. You know, he's like, I don't know, he became a fanboy or something. I, I didn't do anything except say what God had put in my heart. But the idea was discerning the presence. How can you discern the presence like an atmosphere like this? Are you discerning that somebody needs encouragement? Encourage them. Are you discerning that somebody needs prayer? Pray for them. That's what ministry is. Ministry is not you. Ministry is receiving, but then what we do to empower the ministry that God has given us is begin to discern the presence. There was a girl there again at the conference, and I'm going I'm closing, so this is my last slide. i just give you, I'm trying to give you ideas. I walked into the conference, and this girl, the whole time I was there, I was high fiving her. Everywhere I saw her, high five her, tsh, every time I saw her, high five, high five, high five. So I felt like God, I, what I heard in my spirit when I saw her was God told me, encourage the encourager. Okay, so I'll encourage the encourager. So what did I do? I just walked by and high five her every time I saw her, I go, nope, get your hand up, high five, boom. High five, high five, high five, five. High five, high, five, <laughs> say that ten times really fast. Uh, But she was friends with this gal, Betty. And so as I was giving Betty the word, she came over and I said, listen, I wanna tell you something. I said, I feel like you're an encourager and you encourage a lot of people. And I said, but you are seldom encouraged. She, She started crying. She started weeping, you know? And I said, and I feel like the Lord has said to me for me to encourage the encourager. And I said, the Lord sees that you encourage people and he encourages you, you know? That's discerning the presence and then walking into the heart of God. We discern the presence. What is it that you want to do here, Lord? What is it that you want to say here, Lord? What is it that I can do? We discern a toxic atmosphere and we begin to pray, right? Man, it's pretty toxic in this place. Father, let me just go to the restroom for a little bit. You know, you, Whatever it is you do as a believer, to, I tend to get out of the room. Sometimes I'll pray where I'm at, but since I tend to get away from things and just begin to pray and just you know change things. But it's an issue of discerning the presence. Jesus was teaching these disciples to discern the presence. It's next level discipleship, guys. That's really where he was calling them. He was calling them not to just understand their physical limitations or to guide themselves simply by the word, but to go to an entirely new level and begin to discern the presence and begin to operate from the presence. It's a whole new experience, and I don't have time to unpack that, but anyway, do you guys get the idea? Yeah? (laughs) You're all looking at me like, what? I'm going to talk about prophetic impulses in the next service and things like that, but anyway, let's just pray. Let's just receive. All right, so let's just ask the Lord, just ask him. Just say, Father, I am in you, and you are in me. Holy Spirit, teach me to discern the presence. Teach me to understand where you are in the room, what you're doing in the room, what you're doing in my life, and where you are operating in my life. Teach me to understand these things. And teach me to understand your heart and to step into these things. I want your courage, God. I bless you this morning. And I honor you in Jesus' name. And let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may you be forever in his will. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. Oh, I've totally forgot communion. Oh, <laughs> Oh. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Thank you, Elliot. You should have waited.